Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. I'm Tony. We're in uh, kind of the middle of our book here of uh, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory by Scott Christensen. And uh, we're on chapter 10. Everybody loves a good ending. Hmm. So uh, if, if you've uh, made it here and read past it, you might be thinking, wait, what? I yeah. thought we were talking about, about God evil. and yeah. evil. <laughs> yeah. um, this, this seems like a uh, literature lecture. <laughs> it will inform... Again, we have to understand that Scott Christensen is pretty much starting from scratch with this theodicy, and he's trying to paint. Uh, you know, it, it's like doing a puzzle. You know, you do the edges first. That's 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 what us uh, puzzle amateurs do. You know, you don't turn over the pieces. You you find you know the the colors and you you put them together so that way it makes it way easier to do it. I recently did a puzzle, so yeah. I'm going to have a wow. lot of puzzle analogies yeah. probably. <laughs> and so he's he's building his concept of his theodicy, and uh, this uh, this portion. Um, uh, is a little bit different than what we've talked about. You know, we we talked about God's nature and His character. Uh, we talked about uh, you know can can evil stick to God? Are, are we are we attributing God's actions to evil actions? Mm-hmm. Why is that uh, not the case? Uh, especially from the reform standpoint. Um, and um, um, uh, now we're kind of developing a, a more sound. Um, uh, entry point into uh, the theodicy aspect uh, mm-hmm. to it. So that's where he's coming from here. So uh, he starts uh, off chapter 10 by saying, every child grows up longing for a good yarn, a good tale, a good story. The lure of a fantastic story captivates us from the earliest ages, gripping plots complete with monsters and mysteries, heroes and villains set in whimsical landscapes where dangers lurk about in dark forests <laughs> and magical swords, free fair maidens, or if you're not a fantasy person, Pew pew lasers, <laughs> space battles, aliens. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, uh, reading to my girls, I'm like, oh, are, are you here yet? Can can I read the story again? Because I want to read it yeah. again. Yeah. You know, the yeah. Phantom Toll Booth. I want to yeah. read the, the the Hobbit. No, you're bored with it. You cannot be bored with it. It's against family law to be bored with with uh, with the, the Phantom Toll Booth. All right. Well, we just have to wait a little a lot longer. But these are not silly flights of fancy, gratuitous forms of escapism. They are otherworldly tales that help children frame this worldly reality as they learn their place in it. And such stories are most certainly not confined to the children. Right. They're for us as well. Right. <laughs> right. right? And so what in the world's going on here with all this story talk, right? I thought, as you mentioned, you know, we're talking about dealing with the problem of evil. Well, he says, in order to make sense of God's design for evil in this world, he wants to begin by directing our attention to the realm of story, right? He believes that the answer to the broader question of evil's entrance and to God's good creation is embedded in the grand storyline of Scripture, where uh, wherein every truth of the Christian faith, including evil, finds its place. So his Scripture now is... Um, uh, he, he uh, story rather is how he's going to kind of use that as a placeholder to help him to work through uh, these various issues with the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, he says the broad themes of the storyline in scripture in terms of creation, fall and redemption are surprisingly mirrored. He tells us in the whole history of storytelling, right? Go right. figure, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, Architectonics, he says, of storytelling demonstrate the universal longing for redemption from the conflict that we 
call evil. Mm-hmm. So the whole so he's going to talk about here how story and storytelling uh, works within scripture, the source of it, uh, and 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 how that is going to help him to work through this problem right. of evil. Yeah. Right. And and we've seen this, uh, or you probably maybe know this if you're in the world of uh, Jordan Peterson. He he kind of takes this um, kind of meta narrative approach. And says, you know, what what can we draw from Scripture that tell uh, that informs us about humanity? Uh, I said this either uh, depending on where I put the Q and A that uh, we just did, I either said it or we'll say it, and it's brilliant. You should listen to it, or you should listen to it again because it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says, you know, what what can we as humans learn from these stories that that the the human condition is written or or understood or yeah, there may be some historical aspects to it, but what what what's the what's the overall kind of uh, ley lines of a story that we see within within um, the life of, of Noah or Moses or Abraham or Jesus. Um, if you want a kind of a Christian aspect, uh, there's a, a podcast by uh, J.D. Wilson called uh, Stories Are Soul Food um, uh, podcast. And so uh, they do kind of this look at, uh, at it from uh, uh, a, um, a, a Christian worldview uh, point of view. So um, I had a lot of fun listening to, to their stuff as well. And so um, that's part of what we're incorporating here. But we've also, uh, if, if you're a, an expended reader of, of uh, C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, um, if uh, you read uh, The Inklings, um, which I did a, a, re- a review on last year, uh, which uh, the review can be found on, uh, on, on our blog, um, uh, the, the, the Inklings, the, you know, the, the group that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were a part of, they talked about this uh, stuff uh, um, very highly. And they talked about myths, which we'll we'll get into later. And and they were they didn't shy away from um, those those uh, those terms or, or anything like that. And so they built their stories with with kind of this understanding that he's going to go into. So uh, why why we why do we need stories? God has uh, endowed us with a unique gift among His creatures, the gift of language, and the highest art of language is storytelling. Even if you take the at this from a a secular point of view of of you know um, molecules demand type uh, idea. Um, this, this is something that, um, that's a story. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that a, a lot of them, you know, you call the, that a the, creation these, myth, right? these cave drawings that, yeah. that uh, occur that, uh, that tell about the hunt. Um, th- these come into, to, to play here. And why are we doing that? It's because that's uh, part of our, our nature is the storytelling language aspect. We're not just communicating. I see a bear over there, but let me tell you about this bear and, and, uh, you know, the fish story. I caught a fish this big. Well, it was actually this big. If I'm going to be honest, if I'm going to be humble, it was this big. Those are those are the types of uh, stories that we're talking about, too. So the urge to tell stories is clearly one of distinguishing marks of human existence. Yeah. We've been doing it for a while. We're still doing it. We're making good money off of it, too. <laughs> Animals commun- communicate instinctively to one another about approaching dangers, about where to find food, water, and other necessities, but they do not regale their companions with tall tales of the grand hunt or romantic rendezvous in the forest, but for humans, stories are primal. And this isn't just books. This is movies. This is radio dramas for those that remember radio dramas, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and all sorts of things that are occurring where we're telling stories and they, they don't have to be all fiction where we're kind of, um, w- when you listen to a good crime, a true crime podcast or, or, or a true crime story, you get the, here, here are the, the players, here's the rising action, the murder happens. And now, uh, an, another storyline breaks off of that. And, now you're on you're you're on the case. Yeah. And did the person do it? Did they not? 
I think someone was set up here, here, you know, the, 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 the cops are bad, but then the bad guy is bad, but maybe not. Oh, here's the confession and the decline in action and the conclusion. That's, that's the story we put even in to the, uh, a murder occurred today. Uh, it was very sad. Um, they were survived by this person. This person was put on trial. No, no, the, the story that we tell within the confines, even, even in the court case, a good lawyer says, tell a story. You're telling a story to people. Yeah. That's how the, 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 the prosecutors, the defense attorneys connect with the jury. They tell stories. Yeah, That's exactly, exactly what lawyers say. Yeah. And so Christensen asked the question, why are we captivated by stories? Why, why do we need them? And he says, the reason is, is to make sense of our place in the world. We automatically assemble our fragmented experiences, he tells us, uh, together in kind of a sensible and satisfying narrative, right? We have a propensity for uh, framing a constellation of the most important, exciting, and even disturbing threads of our lives, uh, you know, each converging and ebbing, he tells us, and flowing to a clear destination, right? And attended with various successes and hardships. We just, uh, that's the way we're made. Mm -hmm. We're framed that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just reading uh, kind of a collection of of 10 stories for for, uh, young adult readers and it's 15 pages and it's uh, these these kind of famous people within history and uh, they start out with childhood. They go into teenage years. uh, They go to kind of what they're they're famous for and then they died. Okay, that's kind of a boring (laughs) story. But but within 15 pages, they talk about. In childhood, this tragedy informed mm-hmm. what they would do. Mm-hmm. Here's uh, something that they saw or learned about or experienced that informed what they would do. Here's something within uh, what they uh, were doing that they look back upon their childhood and said, I was like this person who's coming to me saying, you know, why does this peanut grow really, really good? Or, uh, you know, uh, what, what do we see out in nature that you're able to, um, to, to deal with um, – with these very sick people and, and, and you saw it happen worse and you developed tools to, to, to treat it better. The, the within 15 pages, it's a, it's wow. this rising action yeah. uh, conclusion. That's, that's yeah. really, really neat to see. Hmm. So, however, our personal stories achieve a deeper significance only when they fit within the grander communal story. We need to fit into a narrative that is larger than ourselves, or we lose sight of who we are as individuals and as a collective community. Flannery O'Connor writes, uh, a people is known not by its statements or its statistics, but by the stories it tells. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, you know, think about uh, if you're American, think about all the stories that you know about the American Revolution. Are those on this and this date, uh, you know, George Washington across the Potomac? No, no, the, the Hessians were on the other side and this dangerous uh, swirl well was around them and they snuck over and they had to take these people out or they were cut off and they were going to die and that's what won that's what won the revolution well except for all the other battles and (laughs) and washington actually uh retreated more than he succeeded in battles and uh there was a lot of desertion okay you know but those stories are the ones that stick with us that you know ben Ben franklin and his kite flying in the storm that happened probably not but you know it informs our idea of of the inventor that Ben Franklin was. It talks about his, you know, adventurous activity where he's going to fly a kite in the, in the storm and all these things. Mm. So this kind of a broader storytelling is the backbone of civilization, says Brian Gadwa. It, it has maintained ritual, uh, systematized beliefs, and taught dogma. In essence, story uh, 
intricates the uh, the myth and uh, values of a culture with the intent of perpetuating them. That's that's mm-hmm. the goal of them is to I'm telling the story and it's going to do something. Um, uh, so it brings uh, cohesion. Yeah. It brings order to a particular culture or society. It it allows that culture or society to pass on the various things that it holds as truth and as as what's important and um, and um, you know um, uh, to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Right? One of the biggest uh, um, uh, money um, uh, collectors uh, during World War II was after um, uh, Battle of Iwo Jima. They got the flag raisers that were still alive uh, for that famous flag raising of, of Iwo Jima, and uh, they had him go on a press junket tour to talk about um, here. Here's you know the island hopping we did. Here's the the the, the great battles that we fought, and here uh, Iwo Jima had the highest number of uh, uh, Medal of Honor winners uh, in a single battle, mm. and they used that story that that picture to then uh, you know, raise money in in, in that way. That was actually the second flag raising. That was done the spur of a moment. The the photographer was barely had the camera up to it. It was just a a, a great shot that was immortalized, and <laughs> they, they took that story and and utilized it to to talk about you know battle and and humanized the the, the war that was over there that uh, people were experiencing kind of for the first time within uh, the the movies and stuff like that. So. Storytelling, even in war, is is this thing that that can be uh, utilized within um, what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so let's kind of he narrows in here in this issue of myth and myth making, and he says the sort of myth that Gadwa, which is this guy that he's quoting mm-hmm. here and helping us to understand, is talking about is is not the popular perception whereby people maintain you know, confident and uh, persistent beliefs in a distorted reality. That's what we usually think of when we think of myths, right? Yeah. An outright fabrication of pernicious falsehood, he tells yeah. us. Right? Perseus cuts down Medusa's head after <laughs> reflecting her vision in the shield. Right, yeah. so he says, no, a myth here is a storytelling impulse that we lean on to frame the identity of the community of the people that we belong to. Myths, he says, are worldviews constructed through stories completed with rituals and corporate identity markers, values and ethics, as well as familiar heroes and the villains that the heroes have conquered to achieve the goals necessary to forge human meaning and purpose. So that's what he's talking about um, by myth here, right? Not uh, a tall tale kind of myth, Mm -hmm. but the kind of uh, worldview constructed stories that are, uh, you know, that can be true. Right. Right. Myth tells us a society what is important. Mm. They provide explanations for the origins and destiny of a people and the world they dwell in as they perceive it. You know, you go back to history. Why, why was sometimes history class so boring? Well, because you have to memorize the dates and stuff like that. But then you get to the Battle of Gettysburg and you talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the Sherman's Charge and, and how spectacular that was. Now let's go back to... The number of dead and <laughs> what happened, and then let's go to the to the uh, gal that's overlooking the battlefield and and just the slaughter happening, and then let's go back and talk about where the troops split up from there and how it rerouted Lee's uh, army. But you kind of remember those things, and you create movies based on the Gettysburg, not not for the date. I mean, you, you do have those things. You, you, you Ken Burns documentary is is super important within the confines of documentary. Uh, but that's kind of the exception that proves the rule here. But, mm-hmm. every, you know, if you watch the movie Gettysburg, 
That's a great movie. <laughs> That's a great myth. The myths that people construct them, uh, that construct, tell them who they are, where they came from, where they're going, and why they exist. Uh, the Star Spangled Banner. It was a battle. Why is that part of our thing that we say at every hockey game, at every football game? Why is that you know the 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 the, the thing that inspires people to stand up and and put their hand over their heart? This is uh, one of those one of those myths that. Uh, within the confines of, of what we're talking about here is something that is uh, building up the nation. That's one of the mm-hmm. reasons it was, it was brought out. Mm-hmm. History tells us that all humans are myth makers. No society has survived long without the creation of myths. We are meaning seekers, meaning seekers. We're seeking meaning through stories, historical narratives, legends, and grand epics. Yeah. Good. And so he says, not every myth that people devise obviously is true. Uh, the story myths uh, that we construct are often full of myths of the other type, right? Untruths, fictitious kinds of narratives and that sort of thing. Nonetheless, everyone uh, situates his or her life within some kind of myth, he tells us, whether true or false, historical or fictitious, and sometimes uh, a stew of both true and false types of claims, right? But he quotes C.S. Lewis here, says that there's really only one true myth right and uh and that of course is um the uh vertical virtile st- uh, story given to us by the triune god of scripture right. that's the only true myth so every other story to a certain extent has some you know off, is off the rails slightly uh you know in terms of truth right mm-hmm. yeah yeah so we're talking about this within the confines of a worldview right uh, we're saying um, what what worldview accounts for this um, universal human condition to tell stories? The, the, the Christian worldview, obviously, is going to draw from Christianity mm-hmm. and say the redemptive history of Christianity uh, is the, the uh, foil in which all other aspects of storytelling are, de- are, are derived from. So this this th- three part action with the the man against man, man against nature, man against himself, uh, the, the protagonist, antagonist, the rising action, all these things, uh, they find themselves in the the image of uh, the Christian worldview here. Right. right. So uh, life and literature, the the essence of an epic historical event, does not have to sacrifice what is true. It does not have to do that. A myth can be true. It simply needs to carefully distill the essence of the event so that it reflects the powerful shared experience of our lives. Uh, many of these things, uh, many more of these things uh, Jesus did, uh, but if I took the time to write more <laughs> about them, the, you know, they would fill the pages of the earth. Okay, so you're telling me John made decisions? He left things out? There's, there's stories out there of Jesus doing things and right. saying things that we're not aware of? Yes. Here's the myth of the Gospel of John. According to Leland Riker, uh, if we can see our own experience in the characters and events of history, it has captured something universal about life. Mm. History tells us what happened, while literature tells us what happens. And so, again, uh, what, so the what, idea here yeah. is kind of seeing ourselves in the deal, right? Yeah. And so that we can uh, identify right. with it, right? right. Yeah. Thus, a good history is crafted with the art of good literature. It is why the historical narratives of the Bible are deeply personal and told with literary genius. Yeah, yeah, good. 
And so storytelling, he tells us, has uh, the capacity to unearth truth in sundry regions where the most articulate propositions might flounder, right? So a story, we can put together truth in a certain way, he's, su- he's suggesting here, that if we just say the truth and tell it, uh, may not work, right? People right. may not get it. They may not identify with it. But mm-hmm. with a story, he says, it's it's a different thing. He says the art of literature appeals to our understanding through our imagination. Mm-hmm. And if we recognize and feel the, for instance, horror of Cain's behavior, let's say, in the story of Cain and Abel, then we've grasped the truth of that particular story. Right. Right. Um, so how many people have read uh, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle? Now, how many people have seen and written on the matrix <laughs> and how much has the matrix for uh, so much so that they made a fourth movie for who knows what reasons other than the money for 25 years. That, that movie has been been lightning in the bottle, a, a, a staple that you couldn't reproduce that, you know, I think most people even admit the first one is uh, phenomenal. The, the next two are eh, fine, depending on where you fall yeah. or they're terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think they're fine. Uh, but, uh, but the, the matrix hits on so many things that, uh, you could pull out anything f- from that, fr- from any perspective, because why? Because we're, we're hit, we, th- they hit on that, on that storytelling aspect yeah. that it's a well the human told story. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it was just nice to watch the matrix again, to think about the matrix. So <laughs> storytelling invigorates our virtues at, as it equally exposes our vices. It, uh, concretizes yeah, the makes, abstract and injects knowledge deeper into our mental awareness. Right, so it, so it, it makes, it. yeah, it makes it concrete, mm-hmm. right? It makes it stable, right? It, it, it establishes it as the idea here, right? Yeah. <clears throat> the, the narrative thread woven through the Bible in itself is the paradigm of visceral storytelling as truth. Its power lies in the uncanny ability to diagnose the inner character of the human life and history via a divinely infallible microscope, Hebrews 4.12 says. Yeah, yeah. So that's what the scripture does for us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, uh, so now what he's going to do here is to talk about this whole idea of uh, what he calls the monomyth, right? The emerging monomyth, right? That's, that's the, the, the big uh, black block in uh, 2001 in Space Odyssey, right? (laughs) So he says, ever since Aristotle, perhaps the world's first literary critic, right? Okay, Aristotle. (laughs) Uh, Careful analysis of storytelling has revealed certain universal, he says, commonalities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every well-crafted story devises a poignant conflict that piques the audience's uh, uh, interest, which then demands resolution in the unfolding of the plot, right? Mm-hmm. So he says the form that such storytelling takes is called the monomyth or the one story, right? It's a compelling narrative and it needs a compelling crisis, right? A ruinous set of circumstances that cry out for resolution. So that's the monolithic mm-hmm. type or monomythic rather type of, of issue with regard to stories yeah. right yeah and and you see in the 60s and 70s you had these uh these movies come out that were kind of countercultural, and they they tried to deconstruct this type of storytelling they were i mean uh, francis schaefer talks about this too uh where, where these people come along and you know they're they're doing interpretive dance and they're they're uh they're talking about the color purple for for 60 minutes or you're you're only looking at a blue screen or, or something <laughs> along those lines but 
even there, you know it as different because you're informed by this this monomyth type uh, storytelling. They're deconstructing it, which means they're using it to say, look how different I am. Right. Look, look how different this is. Right. The, the, this doesn't have characters in a play, uh, you know, in, in the in the confines of a, of a setting with a conflict and, and resolution. Right. But by you pointing that out or by you doing that, uh, you're you are actually referring to it. And so. Yeah. so and he, you're telling your own story. Yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> the, there's there's that aspect of the, the, the artist can't dev, devolve himself out of the, the, the art, no matter how much uh, postmodernism tries to do that. So the ideal plot is a U shaped. So right. the letter U, not the yeah. us royal U. <laughs> so it goes like this is what he's suggesting. Right. right? Uh, good or, no, or does it go like this? Yeah, upside down. You yeah. more more like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's it's, what it's, he's uh, it's the bell curve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, good is followed by the descending darkness of catastrophe, and then followed by the ascending restoration of good again in some way. The stories that leave the most lasting impression are the ones in which the darkest hour is just before the dawn. Right. So maybe it is this kind of you. We start off with good and then we descend into darkness and then we bring, we finally end up. Uh, yeah. So it depends and they lived on, happily ever uh, after. Yeah. On your characters. Yeah. <laughs> the dress is torn. Glass slippers. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the best stories do not end well, but in either case, they highlight our insatiable need for good endings. Now, how many times have you have you read a story and then the happily ever after happens or and then everyone died, you know, the world exploded. And you're like, well, that's just unsatisfying. <laughs> I just wasted however, you know, the short story or, you know. Uh, and he's he's going to deal with these tragedies, yeah. right? Yeah. Is what, is yeah, yeah. what they're called. Yeah, right? the, the, they're the, it, it, not everything needs to be and they lived happily ever after. Right. Uh, the, 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 the story um, uh, uh, formula is, is uh, key there. Yeah, exactly. And so he says, you know, obviously we don't like plots with flat lines, yeah. right? There's a guy and nothing happened. Yeah. Okay. They need to be brilliant. Right. There need to be some indomitable conflicts, he tells us, and there need to be some what he calls you um, catastrophic types of situations. So you catastrophic is kind of the word for a good catastrophe, right? <laughs> That's the, the U uh, prefix there has to do with good, right? Like eulogy is a good word. Right? Mm. So U catastrophic is a, a good catastrophe. That's what he says is needed in a good story. He says, although specific storylines differ, whether composed as comedies, tragedies, romance, satire, epics, or whatever, the overall arc of the plot undergirds a native impulse, he tells us, to contrast good and evil, success and failure, prosperity and adversity in such a way that what is perceived to be good and right and true should triumph, right? If not the resolution of the story itself, uh, then at least in the minds of the audience, right? Yeah. Braveheart. Braveheart yeah. loses in the end. It's a terrible story. Everyone remembers Braveheart. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this unifying universal storyline is found not only in the long history of literature, but more recently in our present filmmaking and television era. Mm -hmm. The most basic forms that this monomyth takes are tragedies and comedies. There's the, the two faces of uh, the, the frowny face and the, the silly face. <laughs> According to the great uh, medieval poet Dante, a tragedy is a story that begins with joy and ends in pain. Right. Uh, comedy begins in pain. And ends with joy. Uh, Our souls long for good outcome of a comedy, and we dread the painful outcome of a tragedy. Yeah. 
So those are, yeah, the two basic yeah. kinds. Right? Hamlet, everyone dies, but it's fulfilling. Yeah, it's, it's a tragedy, it, but, yeah. Here's what revenge gets you. <laughs> utter death and destruction. Exactly, right? So he says, <laughs> even in tragedies, we're encouraged to long even more for the ending of a comedy, right? Uh, it's important to note that tragedy is not a celebration of evil's triumphs, right? few stories, he says, consciously seek to celebrate what is perceived as evil, even if they do so unwittingly or with a consciously uh, distorted ethics, right? Instead, he tells us that tragedy produces grieving over the good that ought to have triumphed. Uh, yet it fell short because of the story's flawed tragic heroes who were overcome by their flaws or the crisis they face, right? So right. that's what a good tragedy does. It, it, ends, it uh, allows for our longing for the good. Right? Mm -hmm. He says the history of the monomyth tells us that we need both the tragedy and the comedy. Life does not always end well, uh, but this creates greater longing for how life ought to end. Mm -hmm. right? So that's what a good tragedy does for right. us. Well, and I think uh, we'll stop here uh, before we get into the monomyth within the confines of what we're talking about. Um, and so hold on, uh, again, uh, this is to inform our theodicy and, uh, understanding this, uh, again, we're, we're still talking about very important things, especially within the Christian worldview. We're explaining where these, uh, storytelling, these myths come from, uh, why they resonate so well. How is it just, uh, our shared, uh, physiology and, and all the, mm. all the different pop bottles shaking up there and they're fizzing <laughs> at, at different rates when, oh, when we hear a really good, is. yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's when you shake a pop yeah, up, right? That yeah, makes sense to me, yeah. <laughs> if other people, could, if, if Socrates can make up words, I can make up words. <laughs> I think that's physiology. Yeah, <laughs> P-physiology. <laughs> uh, so uh, join us next time as we uh, complete uh, chapter 10 here where we figure out, does everyone love a good ending? Mm. What is our good ending? Yeah. So thanks yeah. for joining us, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.